Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, saving us, for giving us life in that more abundantly through your son Jesus. Thank you for the life that we have in him. Thank you that uh, it's by his grace alone that we have found favor with you. Thank you that we get to spend eternity with you. And I pray that you might empower us by your spirit, that we might be able to reach out to the Mormon people. And Lord, we know that you love them and that uh, you sent Jesus to die for them. And so, Lord, I pray that you might give us a real heart and a stick to that we need to reach out to a very, di- a very different people group. So I pray that this time might be very beneficial for everyone here, that we might be able to use this information to reach out to our more family and friends, and that we might see many of them come to know you, and that we might be able to spend eternity with them. So God, I pray that you might use me, that you might fill me with your spirit, that you might overlook my inadequacies as the teacher, and that you might really teach today. And we'll trust you for this. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for coming. My name is Rob Savolka. I am the president of a mission group called Courageous Christians United. And we reach out to the cults, false religions, philosophies, all those groups that try to attack traditional Christianity. We specialize in Mormonism. Right here, this is our main site, mormoninfo.org. Courageous Christians United is our umbrella site that reaches out into different uh, cultic philosophies and stuff. But uh, like I said, our main site is mormoninfo.org. We also have jwinfo.org for Jehovah Witnesses. I know, who was it uh, that was talking to me about, was it Nikki, about sitting next to JW? Okay. So that would be of interest to you. And then we have MuslimInfo.org that's going to be coming soon. And we'll be reaching out to Muslim groups with that. Um, A little background on myself. I was never a Mormon. I grew up in a Christian family. And my interest in getting involved in Mormonism came probably when I was about seven years old. I mean, I was, I don't remember the exact age, but I was, I was quite young. And we had the knock at the door, right? How many of you have had more missionaries come to your door? Anybody here? Okay. Probably about half of you. Mormons are notorious for going door to door, right? And so they came to our door, and I was living in Southern California at the time. My mom answered the door, and she said in a very gracious way, thank you, but we're not interested. And she shut the door on. So I was perplexed. I said, Mom, what, what are these guys? And she said, oh, those are Mormon missionaries. And I said, well, what are Mormon missionaries? And, I, and she said, well, they think you've got to get to heaven by your own good works. And I said, no, they really believe that? And so I went down the street chasing these guys down hid behind the bushes, they were coming at my buddy's place, and I jumped out and I said, you can't get to heaven by your own good works. 
Well, they were very gracious to me. One of them pulled the knee and opened up Bible passage to me. I think it was a Bible passage. That's where they usually go is to the Bible passage, James. If your faith without works is dead, we'll be talking about this. And I just kind of nodded my head and ran back home. And that began my ministry to Mormons right there. Well, it wasn't until about seven or eight years later that I was then living in Houston at the time. My uncle, who was a pastor out in California, invited me to come back out and be a part of our high school summer servants mission team. And they would do different things during the summer. One of them, uh, one of those weeks was going down to Mexico and helping with the orphanages down there. We would also do beach evangelism around town, the park evangelism. Uh, we, we'd do different things during the summer. One of the weeks was going up to Utah. So the youth pastor found a guy at his seminary and, who was involved in outreach to cults and invited him to come and train us in Mormons, in Mormonism. And then he, as well as the youth pastor, brought us up to Utah. We spent about a week and a half up there. They kicked us out, and we started returning the favor to the Mormon missionaries, knocking on their doors. Okay? And that's how I really began to learn about Mormonism. And I fell in love with the Mormon people. And I fell in love with Utah as well. Anybody who's been to Utah here? You're going there tomorrow. God bless you. Right on. Well, we're hoping to get there uh, hopefully next month. John, good to see you. Uh, over there, we've got all the handouts for you. And here, Tara, would you give him uh evaluation for Okay, so... Um, I started going up every summer to do varying amounts of time talking to the Mormons. And I was so just astounded by how their reasoning process worked. I, I, I was so amazed that something that I took to be so obvious from the Scripture, they didn't get it. Right? And their reasoning to get away from what I believe was clearly portrayed in the Scripture was just kind of mind-blowing to me. Fascinating. So I started going up every summer to do varying amounts of time to talk to them, to try to persuade them to believe in traditional Christianity. And I ended up moving up to Utah back in 1998. I was up there until 2005. I uh, got involved in a doctoral program at the University of Utah and had to get away from Utah because I was too involved in ministry to get my doctorate done, so I went to California. It was during that time that I met my wife. Uh, well, who would be my wife? Yeah. And she was living out here in Dallas, and so I ended up coming out to meet her. She will tell you a little bit more about that in her story. So uh, her name is Tara. I would like you to come up and share uh, your story. Okay. Um, my name is Tara Savolka, and um, I actually grew up in the Mormon church. And I um, was born and raised in Provo, Utah. If you guys know where that is, that's where BYU is, Brigham Young University. Anyway, um, I grew up very devout. My family, I think we were fifth generation. We went to church every Sunday, very um, devout Mormons. And not very many other people that lived in Provo. It was mainly Mormons. 
So that's pretty much all I knew growing up. Uh, anyway, then uh, when I was 15, I, um, my father was killed in an accident, uh, a tractor accident, and it just, uh, it really um, got me to start questioning God. And so I prayed for comfort from God, and um, I just really wasn't getting it, and I felt very lost and confused. And I really had a view of God that he would um, reward you for being good and faithful. And here I had served in the church, and I'd done all the right things, so I didn't understand why God was doing this to me. So that kind of set me on a path of my own way, and um, I ended up getting pregnant right out of high school and getting married and having my daughter. And long story forward a little bit, got divorced and moved to Texas. And Texas was pretty much the first place where I was really um, given a lot of opportunities to um, experience Christianity. Um, But I actually thought I was a Christian because I grew up in the Mormon church and I knew all the stories about Jesus. I knew that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And um, so I thought that I was. And I um, started kind of checking out churches and I was going to some Christian churches. And the first church I went to, the whole sermon was on um, throwing away the list and having a relationship with Christ. And I was like, how can they say this at church? This is like wrong, you know? But at the same time, I was like, this is kind of freeing. Like, really? Like, that's what it's about? Because I, it never, that was never something that I was taught that it was all about Jesus. It wasn't all about Jesus. It was about your good works, your family. I mean, all these other things, and Jesus was just a part of it. So to have it, like, focused on Christ was a, just really neat to me. But I didn't, I didn't go ahead and accept Christ then. I kind of wanted to do my own thing for a while. And um, I actually met John Haroon, who was a Christian. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. John's right back there. And um, I'll never forget the time on the, we were on the phone, and he was the first person that told me this. But I was like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a Mormon, you know. We, we believe in Jesus. And he's like, Mormons aren't Christian. And I was like, oh, excuse me, we are too. We believe in Jesus. He's like, well, don't you believe Jesus and, bro- Jesus and Satan are brothers? And I said, well, yeah, everybody believes that. And he was like, no, Christians yeah. don't believe that. <laughs> And so um, I was just really angry, I remember, at the time, but it started the questioning. Like, am I really a Christian? Because um, I thought I always was. So anyways, I ended up later on going through the program Celebrate Recovery, if you guys are familiar with that. And when you get to the third step, you have to accept Christ. Well, here I was, a Mormon, so I thought I had accepted Christ, but I wasn't quite sure because of the things John had said and just because of the uh, this whole new, having a relationship with Christ and being centered on Christ, it was just new to me. So... I went to a friend and was like, okay, I want to figure out how, you know, how do I know if I'm a Christian or not? And, you know, I know all the stories about Jesus. I know he died on the cross, but this is, I'm seeing this as totally different. And I couldn't explain it, but I was just like, this is different than what I grew up with. This is totally different. So um, she led me through the sinner's prayer and I accepted Christ. And um, God kind of got a hold of me through through all the things that had happened in my life. And slowly um, just started changing my life around and got to the point where, I wanted to start sharing Christ with my family, which when I first converted, I'll never forget sitting there, Becca was saying the sinner's prayer, and I'm thinking, okay, God, but I'm not going to be one of those crazy Christians that tries to convert people, because those people are just, you know, I'm not, I'll just do this for me. I kept telling myself, I'll just do this for me. Well, um, as God started to change my heart, I saw the need of my family, and I saw that they didn't really have Christ. Although they professed that they had Christ, they didn't have Christ in their life. They had a lot of good works, a lot of like holy, wonderful things that people would think, oh, yeah, they do. But I knew that they didn't have that relationship. So I actually, a friend, the same girl, Becca, who um, led me through the sinner's prayer, introduced me to Rob. And um, he, he ran this ministry, so I started asking him questions. And he, um, it was kind of hard because, you know, having my dad pass away, I wanted to know, like, are there Mormons in heaven? And so he kind of, like, helped break down a lot of stuff for me um, and process a lot of that. And we ended up, 
getting married, and now God's calling us to Utah. <laughs> so um, it's kind of cool to see how God totally works from, you know, Mormonism, out of Mormonism, but not going to convert, and then not convert other people, and now wanting to go out and see my family have a relationship with Christ and see other Mormons come to know Christ as well. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, that's my story in a nutshell. So. And then share how um, we're in the process right now of hopefully we're trying to decide yeah, we're we kind of praying through some stuff. So you guys want to pray for us? It's a tiny issue. We we uh, just sold our condo in this market, which is great. So yeah. um, the opportunity has opened up to move to Utah and to do ministry out there full time. So um, that's definitely something. And just have a heart to get back there. My whole family is there. Um, there are, the Christian population there is what? Evangelicals are only about two percent. About two percent for the entire state. So there's definitely a need out there. But I I've seen God working, and there's a lot of missionaries moving out there. We have some friends from California who are moving out in December as well. So mm-hmm. um, so hopefully we'll get out there. But I love Dallas, I have to say. I've loved living here. It's been great. So anyway, that's my story. Yeah. Okay, thanks, honey. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you can see that uh, there is a real importance in what we're doing. Okay. We'll talk about that. I hope you can see that God loves Mormon people. And he died for them. And he actually saved some of them. Juliana is an example. Juliana used to be a Mormon as well. Uh, during the break we're going to have here, you guys, I want you to introduce yourself to Juliana, and I'm sure she could share a little bit about her story as well. Okay, so thanks for being here. So uh, the next thing I want you to see as far as importance goes is that your brothers and sisters are getting sucked into the Mormon church. Okay? There it was actually a gal from Watermark here that joined the Mormon church. So we need to be aware that our brothers and sisters around us who don't know any better are getting sucked into the LDS church. 80%, somewhere between 75 to 80% of the converts into the Mormon church come from mainline Christian denominations. They had some kind of previous Christian affiliation before they've joined the LDS church. Guess who the primary denomination has been that they recruit from? Any guesses? The Southern Baptist Church. A lot of external similarities between the two. And if you're not paying attention to the doctrine... Well, it's not that hard of a transition to go from one to the other. John. Yes. Yes, they are growing faster in the South okay, than anywhere else in the United States. Because why? Well, the Southern Baptists are based here in the South, right? And they are the fourth largest group in the United States, religious group, that claims to be Christian. Now, okay? They have 13 million members. They are a very fast-growing church, but they do have uh, a retention problem, particularly in the Spanish-speaking countries. Okay? About half of their 13 million are inside the United States and about half are outside the United States. And they have a big Spanish population. And they have uh, very difficult retention problems. 
It's very easy to get them into the Mormon church, but keeping them around to be uh, a, a consistent churchgoer is, is very difficult for them. Um, but nonetheless, they are one of the fastest growing faiths out there. Now, this group needs the gospel presented to them in a way that they can understand, just like any other mission group. Okay? If you go to some tribe somewhere that speaks a foreign language, you need to break down the gospel for them in their own language, right? Similarly, we need to break down the gospel for the Mormons in a language that they can understand. Because Mormons, as we'll see, use a lot of our terms. Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ, God, Holy Spirit, salvation. Terms that we use, that we're very familiar with. But the problem is, is that, as we'll see, that all cults do, is they distort those terms and come up with a very unique theology. Right? Now, this is, this is why it's such a big deal. Okay? Um, I mean, this isn't like, well, you know, isn't, just, isn't the Mormon church just another Christian denomination? I mean, so what if one person goes from Watermark into the Mormon church? Right? Just like, so what if somebody from Watermark goes to a Baptist church. I mean, what's the big deal? <laughs> You've got to understand that we are talking a totally different worldview here. And that's what I'm, I hope to help you see. Now, even though we might use the same terms, the theology behind these terms is radically different. Now, when I use the term cult, I want you to understand how different that is from a denomination. A denomination as I'm defining here, is a religious group that forms part of the whole of Christianity. Right? So you have Baptists, you have Methodists, you have Watermarkians, okay? you have Calvary Chapel, who don't like to be called a denomination, but they really are, because they go to form part of the whole of the Christian body. Now, a cult, on the other hand, is a little different. A cult is a religious group centered around one's prophetic authority and claims not to be a part of the whole, doesn't claim to be a denomination, right? But instead, it's the whole enchilada, as it were. And it ends up denying one or more of the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. This is a working definition that Jews can use for Christianity itself. Christianity can be referred to Jews as a cult, right? Because we have, they think, distorted one or more of their essential doctrines. Okay? So the way I'm using a cult, the term cult is an evangelical, has a very specific use. I'm not talking about some crazy radical group that is uh, one of these uh, dangerous cults that's, that's going to end up 
doing mass suicide or something of that sort. No, I have a very specific theological definition when I use the term cult. So I want you to understand that. There is a difference between essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine. Somebody give me an example of a non-essential doctrine for the Christian faith. Hmm? Baptism by immersion rather than sprinkling, right? Sure. Uh, The Lord's Supper every week? Sure. Yeah. Um, Whether Jesus comes back before the tribulation period, in the middle of the tribulation period, at the end of the tribulation period, or whether he just comes back at the end of his millennial reign, which is the whole reign of the church. Nah, we don't, we, we don't know. Okay. Examples of non-essential doctrine. Now, what are we talking about when we're talking about essential doctrine? The incarnation is a good example. God becoming flesh. Right? Yeah, anything else? Salvation by faith through God's grace. Yes, definitely. These are doctrines that have to do with God's own character, who He is. You see? The, uh, let me share some verses with you here. Here's Ephesians 4.14. I'm just using the NIV because I... I, I I think it's uh, easy reading. All right. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. Okay. When we have sound doctrine, we're not going to be tossed around by everything that comes down the road. All right. Let's look at... 1 Timothy 4.16 Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, in the Christian church today, we do a pretty good job, right, with the life. I mean, look, if you are having sex outside of marriage, you need to knock that off. It is affecting your life and those around you. Uh, That's very important. Um, Are you a good spouse? Is is a life issue, right? How are you doing with your finances? Are you uh, making an effort to be a cheerful giver? These are all very important things. Things that we should be paying attention to in our Christian life. Now, there, if we have a problem in the Christian church today, it's not that. It's the doctrine. If you are not paying attention to your doctrine, as we've read in Ephesians, you're going to be like an infant just being tossed to and fro with the wind. And this is why judgment begins with the household of God. We in the Christian church are not doing a good job in training our own 
to be protected from people that come knocking on the door to try to bring them into their own cult. And we need to do a better job at paying attention to what is sound, essential Christian doctrine. And that's what we're going to do here today. Okay? So let me share with you a few, several other passages. The first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 23. Now keep that in mind with this 1 Corinthians 6, 9 passage. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, see that? Idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, blah, 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 blah. It goes on to say, these are characteristic of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it is, it is crucial, according to the Bible, that we know God and that we aren't going off chasing after false gods. Jesus put it this way. He said, for false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. Jesus also said in John 8.24, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. Notice the proposition there. That Okay? It's a proposition. It's a propositional truth. That I am the one I claim to be. Well, you will die in your sins. Well, who did Jesus claim to be? Hmm? The only way. John 14, 6. A couple chapters later, he says, Before Abraham was, I am the eternal God. And the Jews picked up stones to stone him because he, being a man, made himself out to be God. Right? Jesus thinks that this knowledge of himself is critical. Do you see that? Look at another passage. John chapter 17, verse 3. No, this is eternal life. Or now this is eternal life. Excuse me. That they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Walter Martin. Any of you have heard of Walter Martin? He's the original Bible answer man. You heard of Hank Hennegraff? Okay. He's in charge of the Christian Research Institute. He has a daily radio program called the Bible Answer Man. Well, this was his predecessor. He wrote a very standard textbook on the cults called The Kingdom of the Cults that I highly recommend you getting. He was very famous for making this statement. He used to say, you can be right in every area of doctrine. But if you're wrong on who God is, you're wrong enough to lose your soul for eternity. You can be right in every area of doctrine, but if you're wrong on who God is, you are wrong enough to lose your soul for eternity. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says this, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, 
your minds may somehow be led astray from the sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we've preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel from the one you've accepted, you put up with it easily enough. Verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, masquerading as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising, then, if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Pretty harsh, huh? (laughs) Paul has has said, I warned you to the point of tears to beware after my being here. The false prophets are going to come. He was like an early Paul Revere, warning the Christian church of false prophets that would come. And we are so lackadaisical today about false prophets in the Christian church, are we not? This was emphasized over and over again throughout Scripture, and I want to hammer this home. Now, this would, look, it would be just as crazy if I were to come here today and say, look, I am a prophet of God. You guys are really in for a special treat here. You think you were coming here to learn about Mormonism? I've got something better for you. I am a prophet of God. I'm starting a new church, the only true church, and our church will be following my Lord and Savior, my wife, Tara. Huh? She's really the, incar- the new incarnation of Jesus. She is, catch the words, Lord. She is Savior. And she, we could say, died for all our sins. She uh, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the... F- I'm sounding very Christian, right? Am I a Christian? <laughs> You're shaking your head. Now you're delusional, man. Okay, this is what we're dealing with when we come to the kingdom of the cults. We're dealing with very sincere people who have got, who use our language. They sound, on the surface of things, very Christian. But when you peel the surface away, you start to see, oh my gosh, uh, this is not Christian. Something is definitely wrong here. There is a difference between genuine Christianity on the one hand and false or counterfeit Christianity on the other. And we need to be aware of this. Particularly if you have a heart for reaching those 13 million that are on their way to hell. And that's what I hope that uh, God's doing in your life is creating a passion for reaching the Mormon people. All right, uh, let's go on and start talking about history here. And if you have if you have any questions, okay, this we're I, I'm going to be very open here. Bring up questions anytime. We're not going to wait to the end. Uh, just bring them up as they come up. History. First point, these are major historical dates that I think that you ought to be somewhat conversant with. Somewhat, you need to know these as you're dealing with Mormons. First date is December 3rd, 1805. 
This is the birth of Joseph Smith in Sharon, Vermont. Joseph Smith was who? He was the founder of the Mormon Church, the first prophet of the Mormon Church. Well, how did that come about? Well, the next date is the spring of 1820. Joseph Smith was here a 14-year-old boy. And he was involved in all the religious excitement at the time. And people were having these revivals. So the story goes from the Mormons. And he was very confused about which church he should join. And so what did he do? Well, he read in James, it says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him go and ask of the Lord sincerely, and God will very liberally give him wisdom. So he went out in what is called the Sacred Grove, not too far west from his home in Manchester, New York at the time. And he had this revelation, this first vision of God the Father and God the Son. The Father said to listen to the Son. And the Son reports this. Joseph Smith said this, In one of their scriptures, he says, I was answered that I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. He has specific mention here in this passage to the Baptists, the Presbyterians, and the Methodists. This is in the context. Specifically labels them. And he says, I was was answered I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the personage who addressed me said that all their creeds were an abomination in his sight. That those professors were all corrupt. That they draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They teach for doctrines, the commandments of men, having a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. This is very important to keep in mind. Because Mormons don't like to bring this up to you when they're trying to convert you to their faith. You see? Mormons have a saying that they like to give the milk before the meat. Right? And this is meaty stuff. That, yeah, we, look, we think that you have some of the truth, they like to say, they like to butter you up, right? And they say that uh, we just want to add to that. Okay? And so they don't go on to tell you that Jesus, according to them, told their prophet that their churches were wrong and an abomination in his sight. Did you have something to add to that? Well, they won't tell you off the bat that, um, like, especially if you have Mormon missionaries, they'll come in your house, they'll see your crosses, and they'll be like, "Oh, you're Christian. Oh, we're we're Christian," and um, you know they'll try to um, kind of butter, like he said, butter you up and appear to be very. Um, very Christian, and, and then say, you know, we, we just want to add to the truth. We just want to add. But if you read in their doctrine, and also there's a passage, I don't know if you're going to get into that, First Nephi 14.10. No, but go ahead. Um, that in the Book of Mormon. It's in the Book of Mormon, and um, I, I love to have them read that when they tell me that, because it basically says that there's two churches. One is the Church of God, which is the Lamb, right? And then the second church is the Church of the Devil. Um, so... When I when I bring that up with them, I'm like, I usually see their face get white with the missionaries because they're not used to people bringing that up because they're used to, oh, we just have this wonderful thing to add. So that's just something to keep in mind that 
in their actual scriptures it says that there's two churches. One is the Church of the Lamb of God, a.k.a. Mormon, and one is the Church of the Devil. Yeah, very good. Any other church. First Nephi 14.10. Okay, the next important date, September 21st, in through the evening into the early morning of the 22nd, 1823, three years later, Joseph Smith has a bedroom appearance from the angel Moroni. Well, who is the angel Moroni? The angel Moroni is a resurrected prophet from the Americas who had scripture to, that he buried in a hill in upstate New York and he wanted Joseph Smith to eventually uh, get this scripture. Okay? And so during this time, he appeared several times to Joseph Smith, instructing him in the ways of the Lord. September 22nd, Moroni, and on, on these uh, next three years, okay, these next 1824, 1825, 1826, Moroni visited to instruct Smith on that same day. And then, on that same day, September 22nd, 1827, Moroni shows Joseph Smith where the plates are and allows Joseph Smith to get unearthed these gold plates that were underneath the stone on this hill called Camora in, uh, in Palmyra. And then these gold plates were supposed to be translated into what became known as what? The Book of Mormon. Right. Go ahead. Um, the, the interesting thing that the Mormons won't tell you is that Joseph Smith, before this, was a treasure digger. So mm-hmm. he was um, going in, and he was actually in trouble for swindling some people into um, apparently saying that he was going to uncover treasure. The Mormons won't give you this. This is information you have to find out. I, I asked my mom, who is a devout Mormon, and she was like, well, yeah, he was a treasure digger, but what's the big deal? And I'm like, and he was in trouble for swindling people. Well, yeah, but still, he still found the gold plates. God still Now used tell him so. how he did his treasure digging. Remember? I, oh, uh, the stones in the hat? Yeah, he would have this hat, and he would put these stones, and then he would look in, and it would tell him where to dig. For it was called glass looking. Yeah. Okay, back then. And so this way, it was a, it's an occult practice, an occultic, O-C-C-U-L-T. I see. This is how he would find buried treasure. Well, he never found him, but he would lead people on. He would swindle people. And he actually got fined something like $2.68 by a judge in New York for actually doing this. Now, get this. The way Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon, guess how? (laughs) Same way. He stuck this stone in a hat. Well, primarily, this is how he did it. He'd cover the hat uh, to his face, and then he would read off what would appear in the stone. So I'm not quite sure why he needed the gold plates <laughs> when the, all the information is conveyed on this stone, but anyway, that's the way God set it up for him. But this is an occultic practice that uh, supposedly God used to bring about the Book of Mormon. Next date, May 15, 1829. Joseph Smith and his buddy Oliver Cowdery are ordained to the Aaronic priesthood by none other than John the Baptist. 
next day. Now, sometime after this, but before 1830, August 1830, we're not quite sure, Peter, James, and John, the apostles, they came back and they uh, conferred this Melchizedek priesthood upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. This priesthood is essential to operate in, in God's authority in his church these days. You need them both to be a worthy male member. Next day, March 26, 1830, the Book of Mormon was published in Palmyra, New York. So it took approximately three years from the time Joseph Smith got the plates to the time the Book of Mormon came about. Next, April 6, 1830, Smith organizes the Church of Christ. That's what it was called, technically, the Church of Christ. It went through several name changes until it became known as it is today, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's also abbreviated LDS. So when you see LDS, it doesn't mean Lucifer, Devil, Satan. It means... Latter-day Saints, all right? And um, they've, uh, over the years, that you know, growing up, I would always consider myself a Mormon, but I think there was a push to start calling themselves um, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so, or to say LDS. So you'll hear that mm-hmm. term more common than people say, oh, I'm a Mormon. Instead, you'll hear, oh, I'm a Latter-day Saint, or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Next date, June 27, 1844. Smith was murdered in the Carthage jail by an angry mob. Mormons call this the martyrdom of Joseph Smith. Now, Joseph Smith was put in jail because he destroyed a printing press in Nauvoo, Illinois. He was the mayor, and he issued an order to raise this printing press. And that this printing press came out with one article, its very first article, that spilled the beans on Joseph Smith being involved in polygamy. He was involved in this secret practice of taking other wives. And I think it was about 11 out of his first 12 wives, extra wives, were already married to other men. Joseph Smith ended up having, I believe it was 34 wives, right? And so, um, very disturbing stuff uh, back then. And, and, and so, um, Joseph Smith was very upset that the lid had been blown off on polygamy. And so, he ordered this printing press uh, torn down. Next day, 1846 through 1847, Brigham Young picks up the mantle and he leads the Mormons to Utah. He arrives in the Salt Lake Valley, July 24, 1847. This day is a state holiday in Utah. It's yep. called Pioneer Day. When I moved to Texas my first year, I was really mad that we didn't get July 24th off. I didn't understand why they were making me work on a holiday. I had no idea that it was a Utah holiday, so it was pretty upsetting to me. But Very sheltered. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we'll, uh, I want you to talk about the... Black issues. Yeah. Like that. But uh, anyway, it's, it's it's like another 4th of July form up there. Okay, That's how it's celebrated. Yes. They also found Las Vegas. 
No, not on the way up to Utah, but after Salt Lake, yeah. Right. And uh, San Bernardino, uh, California was found in some other settlements, yeah. Okay, next date, December 27, 1847. This is when Young, Young, Brigham Young, was actually sustained as the second LDS prophet slash president, president prophet, however you like to say it. So it took uh, about three and a half years before he was actually officially the prophet of the LDS church. There was, there was quite some turmoil going on as to who was going to take over the LDS church after Joseph Smith. Next very important day, 1890. This is uh, this manifesto came out, it's called, or the official declaration one given by the president prophet Wilford Woodruff at the time. Anybody know what this is? Polygamy, that's right, yes. Uh, The LDS church was getting tremendous pressure from the U.S. government at the time to uh, do away with polygamy. Uh, the, state, the state of Utah wasn't a state then. It wanted to become a state. It wasn't going to become a state if it had polygamy going on. And so they put the pressure on the LDS church, and all of a sudden, the president gets a revelation. Ah, let's let polygamy go. Okay? And this is, when, this is a, a real dividing line between uh, the mainstream Mormon church that's based in Salt Lake City, Utah, and other groups that we had here in Texas, which are called the FLDS. What does the F stand for? The Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These are the ones that believe all the early stuff of Mormonism from the founding prophets. Okay? And they think that Wilford Woodruff brought the Mormon church into apostasy. Okay? So um, this, this is a very important date, a very important dividing line. Next date, official declaration number two in 1978. And this was given by Spencer W. Kimball. And this allowed all worthy male men to receive a priesthood. All worthy male men. And, and that includes the blacks. The blacks up until that time were able to join the Mormon church, but they could not receive the blessing. Well, they could not be priesthood holders. They could not have the Aaronic priesthood, and they could not have the Melchizedek priesthood. Women today do not have the priesthood in the LDS church. It's only for worthy male members. Now, there was a lot of turmoil at the time, 1978, a lot of civil rights stuff going on at the time. Uh, there were actually schools that were boycotting playing BYU and athletic events because of their stance on not allowing blacks to hold the priesthood. Um, Also during the time, a very important thing that was going on was there was a temple being built in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Now down in Sao Paulo, Brazil, there are a lot of people down there with black blood. Okay, So... Why build a temple down there if uh, nobody can go in it? You see what I'm saying? So, as a matter of good business, ah, Spencer gets a revelation. Another convenient revelation from the Lord. Ah, I think it's all right. Go ahead and uh, we'll let the blacks have the priesthood. 
the present president slash prophet of the Mormon church, this guy right here, Thomas S. Monson. Not as popular as his predecessor, who was, anybody know? Gordon B. Hinckley. Yeah, Gordon B. Hinckley was a charmer. <laughs> he, knew, he, was, he was good at public relations. And he was, he was uh, on Larry King quite a bit. Uh, he, he, he liked the press. He was very comfortable with the press. Uh, not Thomas Monson so much. All right, let us talk about the standard works. What are standard works? Well, these are the Mormon scriptures. And there are four scriptures in the Mormon church. First is the Bible. Now, the Mormon church, and I still can't figure this out for the life of me. I don't understand why this is the case, but they use the King James Bible. And they believe that the Bible has had problems to it. Okay? They have this article of faith that says that we believe in the Bible to be the word of God insofar as it is translated correctly. Well, it really is not translated correctly and there have been all these problems to it. As a matter of fact, one of the next books in the standard works, the Book of Mormon, in 1 Nephi chapter 13, says that many plain and precious truths were taken out of the Bible after the time of the apostles. You see? And so there was this period of darkness that happened up until Joseph Smith came on the scene and God restored. It wasn't a reformation of the church. It was a restoration of the church that Jesus established at the beginning. Okay? And it fell into apostasy. And all these uh, precious truths were taken out of the Bible. And, there was, and after the time of the apostles, the priesthood wasn't transferred onto anybody because everybody became so corrupt. And so God in his timing in 1820 reached out through a 14-year-old boy to restore the, the true church of Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, I don't get that. This is what I don't get. I don't get why Joseph Smith, he has a translation of the Bible. It's, it's, it, it goes by the uh, abbreviation JST, the Joseph Smith translation. Okay? Now, it, or it's also referred to as the inspired version of the Bible. Well, they have this. It is complete, uh, Old and New Testaments, but they don't really use it. It's footnoted. Okay? But they use the King James Bible, which they believe has all these translation problems. Yeah. Yeah, Moroni was the son of Mormon. Okay? And so Moroni, good question, by the way. Uh, Moroni was the editor of all of Mormon's compilations. In, in Rob? Yes. You might well, the, the Book of Mormon is the story, they believe, of um, the, the Americas and Christ returning to the Americas. So that, it's that whole story. Mm-hmm. And so in there, it's, it's very similar like to the Bible. They have prophets and they have all these wars and things like that. So um, it appears to be, it's almost like he took the Bible and like made another version of it, of this is what happened on the Americas. Yeah. So. The subtitle to the Book of Mormon is called Another Testament of Jesus Christ. Okay. 
And it is God's dealings through the people starting in Israel and their migration over the oceans to the Americas. Okay. And it covers a period primarily between 600 B.C. and 421 A.D. Now, there are also even more ancient uh, uh, migrations uh, thousands of years earlier than that, but they're minimized in the Book of Mormon, not talked about very much. But the primary bulk of it is from 600 B.C. to 421 A.D., and its, its grand event in the Book of Mormon is Jesus appearing in the Americas shortly after his um, resurrection. Okay, next book, Doctrine and Covenants, also goes by the D&C. These are revelations given primarily through Joseph Smith. There's also, I believe, one by uh, Brigham Young, uh, John Taylor and uh, Joseph F. Smith in there, but it's the bulk of it is revelations given through Joseph Smith, starting in 1835. But that's the Doctrine and Covenants. But earlier than that, it was called the Book of Commandments, starting in 1833. Now the and, last yes, well, go ahead. that's that's where you'll find a lot of the uh, weird stuff like about polygamy yes. and. Yeah, um, like the Book point. of Mormon, usually they give you that to read first. The missionaries mm-hmm. will say, oh, read the Book of Mormon, pray about it. If you get a good feeling, it's true. Um, they don't give you really the Doctrine and Covenants till after, and that is, I think it's because that's where a lot of the um, the weird stuff about polygamy and taking multiple wives and things like that, it's, it's located in the Doctrine and Covenants. Right. They re- and they have another one, too, that Rob's going to... Which is called the Pearl of Great Price. And the Pearl of Great Price has the ancient books of Moses, the ancient book of Abraham. It has a translation of the end of Math, from the Joseph Smith version from the end of Matthew 23 on through the whole of Matthew 24. It has that account that we read of the first vision is in there. And it also has uh, the 13 articles of faith where that eighth article was, we believe in the Bible to be the Word of God insofar as it's translated correctly. Now, um, that, those articles of faith are probably the closest thing to a creed that the Mormon Church has. Okay? So these are the four books uh, that comprise the standard works. Oh, sure. Oh, sure, yeah. And those official declarations, those manifestos, are tacked on to the end of the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay? But, see, they believe in, a very, in what's called progressive revelation. Right? And they believe that God has not shut up the heavens, they say. Right? But that God continues to reveal stuff through his prophets for these latter days. So it's always possible that God can one day bring about uh, more standard works. Sure. Um, it, on the racism, if you guys grab the racism track, it talks about um, the Journal of Discourses, which is a lot of the weird writings of um, Brigham Young. That as a Mormon, I never read. Um, unless you're really studying Mormonism, you don't really read that. But they, yeah, they don't give it to you. But I mean, it's like volumes. It could fill like I don't know a room of all these volumes of his crazy writings. You can actually get them online. And um, you can go to the 
like the is it the BYU site I think or one mm-hmm. of those sites and you can actually read what um, those are but they also say that whatever the prophet says is basically revelation and so it could be considered as um, scripture mm-hmm. so he, and he wrote volumes Brigham Young wrote about a lot of weird stuff Nikki here it is right here okay, this is what's called a try. Yeah, and that's called that, the quad. And that's called the quad, right? And sometimes you can get them separately. But it's uh, not too big. Yeah. And you guys can come up and look at this after, uh, at the break or whenever afterwards. All right, let, let's go on. Any, any other questions up to this point? Okay, let's go on to talk about doctrine. Now, doctrine is laid out in this chart that you picked up. I also, I also have it here on the screen. Yes, go ahead. Yes, doctrine comes. No. Um, boy, what would you say? I mean, um, it's open to them. You get, I mean, these are readily available. The, the problem with like the Doctrine the Covenants, like there's the whole revelation of polygamy in there. But um, you can go there and read through that with them and they say, oh, well, that's changed. So they'll do that with a lot of the crazy doctrines in the Doctrine Covenants. They'll say, oh, well, that's changed. Or, oh, well, that was for that time. They'll always say, that was for that time. That's no longer something that we practice or whatever, but it's still in there. But some, some Mormons aren't really aware of all the doctrines in their own books because they just don't read them. Mm-hmm. Right? And, I mean, it's, it's rare to find. I, I ran into one gal that I was really surprised. I started going through a list of their peculiar doctrines, and she had no idea about this stuff. And she had been in the LDS Church for quite a while. But this is typically... This typically happens for people that are from a Christian background that join the LDS church and don't really know any better. Right? These people, yeah, they, they don't know, and they're not going to come right out and teach them these things until uh, usually they go through the temple. Right? Because in the temple, that's when you find out the more deeper doctrines of Mormonism. And uh, when you go through the temple, let's say for the guys, it's usually when they go on their mission at 19 years of age. For the girls, it's when they're 21. Um, And uh, if they don't, then it's when they get married and sealed in the temple for time and all eternity, rather than till death do you part. And we're going to be talking about that right now in this Law of Eternal Progression. The law of eternal progression, well, this starts out by the pre-mortal life. And the pre-mortal life is in eternity past. In eternity past, there existed all these intelligences. Okay? Plural. In other words, all these intelligences were never created. Okay? They have always existed as eternal matter. Everything is matter. Now, in some mysterious way, there was a god. And a god got together with his goddess wife and they produced these 
spirit children. What happens is God took from these intelligences and he fashioned into his wife or his wives, what most Mormons will say, God has many wives, and he produces these spirit children. There's a gestation period, however long that is, in this pre-mortal life. And then a spirit child is born into a spirit world that God and his wives rule over. And this, this is one of the reasons Mormons have such big families is because they believe that there's all these spirit babies up in the spirit world currently waiting for homes to come into. And so as part of their commandments, they believe to uh, replenish the earth. They, they want those children born into Mormon homes. And so they really encourage the large families. That's why you'll see all these big, large Mormon families. Okay, now in the spirit world here, God the Father and one of his wives gave birth to his firstborn son. His firstborn son was who? Jesus. That's right. Now, a later-born son, probably his second-born son, we're not quite sure, but one of those other sons was Lucifer. So Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers in a pre-earth life. Now, you can think of spirit children, these spirit Jesus and spirit Lucifer and and uh, all the younger brothers and sisters, spirit younger brothers. You can kind of think of them like uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. I'm, I mean, I'm caricaturing here, but this is, this is pretty close to get you to see what Mormons think of as spirit children in the spirit world. Okay? Think of Casper the Friendly Ghost. It has dimension, size, but it's... Uh, kind of ethereal, right? But it doesn't, for some reason, uh, like doesn't produce like in this realm because God the Father and his wife have uh, more tangible bodies of flesh and bones. And they produce these spirit children. Now, there was this, in this spirit world, there was this great war in heaven. And the great war was that there was this council of uh, a God in uh, Jesus and Lucifer. And they got together and they were planning on building an earth, a world, for all these spirit children to be sent to so that they could gain more tangible bodies of flesh and bones themselves. But there was this war, there was this conflict between Lucifer and Jesus. Jesus wanted to give all these spirit children free agency to decide for themselves whether they wanted to accept God's ways or they just wanted to shine God off and do their own thing. Lucifer, on the other hand, said, no, we don't want free agency. We want to constrain them to believe. And so you had this war in heaven. Lucifer and all the younger brothers and sisters who followed him became the demons. And the demons were cast out of the presence of the Father and they were forever denied coming to earth to take on tangible bodies and flesh and bones like the rest of us lucky ones here. Because the rest of us lucky ones here actually followed 
Jesus in his plan. Okay? And so because we follow Jesus in his plan, we were able to come to this earth to gain tangible bodies of flesh and bones so that we can come to the second estate and progress and follow everything that the Mormon church requires of us with the hope of becoming like our heavenly parents. Right? Now, there was, I should back up here uh, from earth. Um, This says born according to merit here. Now, many Mormons, not all, but I would say probably the great majority still believe this doctrine that there was a certain percentage of people that were in this great war in heaven that were kind of fence setters. That were uh, they were not they weren't fighting as valiantly for Jesus as the rest of us white folk. These are the darker skinned people that were able to come to earth, but they were mm, kind of punished for their inadequacy in fighting for Jesus in this pre-earth life. And so they gain more darker skin. And I'm, I'm pretty sure they still teach that because I ran into some missionaries that were trying to witness to um, some African-Americans. And um, I said, hey, why don't we talk about this? And I saw them kind of like, oh, Okay. And so they started to tell the story, like, well, yeah. And I'm like, so you tell them how you believe they're cursed because of the pre-Earth life. And they're like, well, yes, you know, but as of 1978, the prophet got a new revelation. I'm like, okay, but tell them why they were still born with dark skin. And so the missionaries were just like, who are you? What are you doing here? You're ruining our witnessing. <laughs> but um, So I know that's still something they teach because they did admit it when I called them on it. They said, yeah, we, we do believe that. Oh, and you were believing it too. Tell them, yeah. tell them your story of uh, the gal you were working with. Yeah, I worked with, when I first came to Dallas, I worked with a, late, uh, with a girl, and um, she's African-American. And I, um, we were talking one day, and I just said, oh, yeah, you know, your people are cursed. And she said, excuse me? And, um, yeah, and I said, well, you know, you guys were cursed because you didn't fight for Jesus in the free earth life. And she was just like, she'd never heard this, which I thought was Shelter common. Utah, yeah, I grew up in Utah, like 98% white, 98% uh, Mormon where I lived. But um, so I said this to her and she was just not pleased with that. And then I said, and she said, there, it doesn't say anything about that in the Bible. So, of course, then I said, oh, well, what about the mark of Cain? And she said, no, that was a mark of protection, but... It just kind of shocked me, and that's when I realized, oh, everybody doesn't believe that. I thought my whole life had walked around and believed that everybody else believed that the, the story that um, people with dark skin had been cursed. So, yeah. so it, I, I think it is still a common belief today. They don't like to talk about it, though. Yeah. Definitely when I called those missionaries on it, they were like, <laughs> they knew that I knew something. And they, I think they kind of knew I was an ex-Mormon because they were like, how do you know? So. Uh, no, no, it's in the uh, Pearl of Great Price in the book of Abraham, the book of Moses. Yeah, and also there's an official statement from the uh, First Presidency of the LDS Church dated in 1951. Let me read this to you. The attitude of the church with reference to the Negroes remains as it has always stood. It is not a matter of declaration of a policy, but of direct commandment from the Lord on which is founded the doctrine of the church from the days of its organization to the effect that Negroes may become members of the church, but that they are not entitled 
to the priesthood at this present time. Again, 1951. goes on to say, The position of the church regarding the Negro may be understood when another doctrine of the church is kept in mind. Namely, that the conduct of spirits in the pre-mortal existence has some determining effect upon the conditions and circumstances under which these spirits take on mortality. This is from the official First Presidency Report. Uh, That uh, was dated August 17, 1951. So, um, So these people were sent to earth to take on tangible bodies of flesh and bones, but they were cursed with dark skin. The rest of us got lucky. We were born with... Uh, well, what the Book of Mormon used to say, referred to us as, we were white and delightsome. Hmm? They took that term white out and they changed it in the early 80s to pure and delightsome. Nonetheless, there are passages in the Book of Mormon, as you'll see on the other side of this handout, that clearly teach that God curses some individuals in the Book of Mormon with dark skins. And in 3 Nephi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16, as they repent, their skins become white. Now, if that's not racist, I don't know what is. Okay? But that is what is taught and that in their own Book of Mormon that they disseminate to people to have them read as a hook for joining the Mormon church. But it's amazing. Um, like uh, Rob ran into some high school kids who were African-American and black, and he um, read that to them, and they were just shocked because yeah, they had no never idea. seen that. And he said, look, it says right here that their skins, when they repented, their skins were washed white. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so it's, it's still in there, too. but um, they very much gloss over that. They don't get into that. Okay, now Lucifer and his helpers, the demons... Uh, denied from earth, they go straight away to what is called the second death. This is where they're going to end up. Okay. Satan and a, a third of his helpers are cast into what's called, it, this is also called outer darkness. And this is also where uh, sons of perdition go, like Tara mm-hmm. and Juliana. All right. Those that have known the truth, but have given it up, who have apostatized, and they have become sons of perdition. But then my family will say, well, you must have just not really known, because if you really would have known, you would have never denied it. So I still might be going to one of the other kingdoms. Okay, so when we die here in in (laughs) earth, we go to one of two places. The first place is where Mormons, all Mormons go, and that's called paradise. Now, in paradise, they go to this other place to teach the rest of humanity, and that's called spirit prison. Okay? And then we have a chance to hear what the true gospel is from the Mormons in the afterlife. Okay? So we have a second chance after this life, to receive the gospel in its fullness. So that's where Christians would go. 
Like yeah, really Christians will go, and everybody who is not Mormon will go to the spirit prison. Okay. Well, we will get to that. Yeah, <laughs> You're one step ahead of me. All right. Uh, now, the first resurrection is for those in paradise. The second resurrection is for those in spirit prison. Those of the first resurrection go into a thousand-year reign with Christ, the millennial kingdom. And then after that thousand years, they go into the judgment. Those in spirit prison, they get resurrected at the end of the millennium, and they go straight into the judgment as well. Now, depending on what you do with the gospel presented to you, you go to one of four places. We've already seen how Lucifer and his helpers go straight away into outer darkness. Those who are apostates also go there with them. The rest of humanity, the great majority of humanity, will go to one of three degrees of glory. These are also called heavens. Okay, You have a uh, first heaven, a second heaven, and a third heaven. The bottom heaven being the celestial kingdom, middle being the terrestrial kingdom, the third heaven being the celestial kingdom. Okay? Now, there, you know, keep in mind, there's a great many of God's children that are going to be in outer darkness. And this is probably the closest thing to hell we have. But in the Bible... Uh, I, I think Jesus is pretty clear that the majority end up in outer darkness. It's very few that are on the path that leads to life, remember. But the Mormons, for the Mormons, the great majority go to one of three degrees of glory. In the bottom kingdom, the celestial kingdom, is for the wicked of the world. Saddam Hussein, Hitler... Stalin, Mao, those guys, those real, Charlie Manson, all these real evil psychopaths, all these guys go to a celestial kingdom, a heaven of sorts, which is ruled over uh, and visited by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Ghost can go and visit uh, and rules over that. Now, in the second kingdom is ruled over by the Lord Jesus. And this is where the honorable men of the world, people like us, okay, we go to this terrestrial kingdom. But we didn't accept Mormonism. So, the highest kingdom is reserved for the Mormons. Those are the ones that go to be in the presence of the Father. But even within the celestial kingdom, there are degrees in the celestial kingdom. Those who are single, who have never gotten married, who or have gotten married, but have never been sealed together in the temple for time and all eternity, remain single. And these are what the Mormons refer to as angels. Angels like the angel Moroni. He's a single guy who never got sealed in a temple. And so he is in the celestial kingdom. He can go and he can visit earth to tell Joseph Smith what the deal really is. But he resides in the celestial kingdom. Now, there are also uh, spots for uh, other good Mormons. Um, And 
And the highest, the highest degree that you can go on in, in this place is called exaltation. And this is where you can become a god yourself with your spouse. But you have to be married. But you have to be married. You have to be sealed in the temple for time and all eternity. No, no single gods. No single gods. That's right. All gods have spouses. And uh, this, so they can do exactly what our God and uh, his wife or wives did for us. We can go on and we can populate our own world pulling from these intelligences from eternity past, and we can create, which uh, Mormons think of typically sexually, right? We can create our own spirit kids in a world that we will rule over, and then we can create a earth, a planet, to send our own spirit children so that they can gain tangible bodies of flesh and bones themselves and start the process all over again. Now get this. One of the most blasphemous things about Mormonism is that they think that their own uh, spirit kids, if they go on and do everything that the Mormon church requires of them, they can populate this world with their own kids and those kids will worship who? You. They will not be worshiping the God of this world. Do you hear that? John. They, um, they become a God as in their God is a God, but they, that God is still above them. So in, in believing that, if you follow that line of thinking, then our God, that, we, that they, they claim to be God, has a God above him as well, that he at one time had to bow down and worship to and follow. Yeah, let me, let me read you. Do you have your uh, seven differences between Mormonism and Christianity? Is that clear, John? Does that make sense? All gods have done before you, namely by going from one small degree to another until you attain the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings and sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power. This is Joseph Smith. Now, the fifth president of the Mormon church summed up the law of progression, law of eternal progression this way. You guys heard this before? As man is, God once was. As God is, Man may be. If you get this, you basically got all of Mormonism encapsulated for you in a very pithy statement. Take a moment right now, meet your neighbor if you haven't, and say this for memorization. Now think of it this way. I'm going to help you do this. Okay? In Mormonism, what is primary? It's not God. It's man. Okay? So you start off with man. As, God, no, as man is, God once was. God was once like us. Okay? As God is now, we, man, may become. Take a minute, introduce yourself to your neighbor, and say that to him. Let's, let's all say it together. Okay? As man is, 
God once was, as God is, man may be. As man is, God once was, as God is, man may be. Okay, get this. Memorize this statement. Because when you witness to Mormons, they are going to trip you up. They're going to try to get you to think, ah, we don't believe any of that stuff. We'll say, hell, you ever heard of Lorenzo Snow's statement? As man is, God once was. As God is, man may be. What does that mean? And you, you will impress them. Okay? And it will be quite helpful for your evangelism. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I am not giving you any arcane, weird, uh, only a select few group of Mormons know about this. Because I want to... I just got so much good stuff I got to share with you guys, and I'm got I've got a couple videos to um, back this up too. So you you're not going to think that I'm just Rob's just making all this stuff up here and just try, what's that? Ten minutes till break. Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah, so we started about twenty till. You wanted to do three fifteen, right? Uh, yeah. So if you want to show the video. Okay. Well, let's let's go as fast as we can here on on some of this stuff. Okay, implications. Implications. Number one, this is very important stuff. This is all based on what we just learned about what all Mormons know about the law of eternal progression. Okay, what's implied by this? Number one, God is not the creator of literally everything outside himself, even though LDS talk in terms of of Jesus creating all things. Third Nephi chapter uh, 9, verse 15, is quoted in the statue presentation in the North Visitor Center of Salt Lake City. Okay? You have this Chris, huge Christus statue there. And they'll take you upstairs to see this. They play this little recording. And you have, Behold, I am Jesus Christ. I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. So your typical Christian sees that and goes, well, that's just what I believe, right? That's Christian. Well, you've got to understand, again, Mormons have a particular language. They have a particular way of talking. And you've got to become savvy about this. You've got to know what buttons to push to have this stuff start coming out. But what I'm telling you is held by all Mormons, okay? But you've got to become skilled in how they talk in order to get through to them. So, yeah, Keith. So does every person that becomes a god um, have a, a Jesus and a Lucifer? I mean, what if all of a sudden they're buddies? Yeah, we, we don't know. We it, don't, yeah, it doesn't really go into that much. That will That's for other revelation that they might bring up in the Scripture someday. But at this point, yeah, we don't know. Yeah, I noticed a lot of you guys trying to write down. If you don't want to write down, we can send you the uh, the outline with all this information. If you just make sure you give us your email address, so you don't have. Well, to a lot of this stuff is on down. my home or on this um, seven differences between Mormonism and Christianity that I handed out to you, right here. You see this? A lot of these quotes are right there. This is so helpful for you guys when you guys sit down with your Mormon friends and family. Sit down with them with, on, with this, okay? When, because when they start spinning stuff with you and talking their language, saying, well, you know, it says here that your prophet said this. 
as man is, God once was, as God is, man be. Okay? Uh, you believe that? Well, yeah. Well, wait a minute. What do you, you see? On, you see? Okay, you need to have some helpful quotes handy to get places with them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're, and we're getting to that. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, geez, I wish we had a couple more hours. <laughs> a couple <laughs> days. Yeah, maybe a couple <laughs> days. I mean, I've taught a whole semester of Mormonism. And I'm trying to cram this all in three hours for you guys. It's, it's a little overwhelming. I tell you what. If you, if you want to know the language of Mormonism well, you need to come out to Utah with us and do a mission trip someday. Okay? And throw yourself into the whole culture. And I tell you, after a week, with your head splitting, you're gonna, you will pick up the language pretty quickly. It's like my brother. He's a missionary over in Serbia. Okay? When he first went over to Serbia, right before all the wars in the early 90s, he, got, he, he, he lived with a family that all they spoke was Serbian. Uh, pretty daunting, but I'll tell you what, it's either do or die, right? And he picked up the language real quickly. If you want to learn this stuff, I mean, this stuff is good that we're doing now as a primer, but if you really want to know this stuff quickly and get it ingrained in you, come up to Utah and we'll put you to work. And you will pick it up pretty quickly. Okay, um, let's go to the next one. Um, so, wait a minute, let me back up here. Do you understand this? I mean, does this make sense to you, this, why this follows? Because God didn't create the world that he was born on as a spirit child. You get that? Okay. Jesus did not create, what, Lucifer? Huh? He didn't create our spirits in a pre-earth life. Jesus did not create the planet that he was born on as a spirit child. You see that? So you've got to understand, when Mormons say, well, Jesus Christ created all things, you've got to understand what's also going on in the Mormon's mind when they're saying that. Because there's a lot of other stuff out there that he really didn't create. Well, yeah, but Genesis is spun. Okay. In the beginning, see, we're, hold on a minute. We, we're getting you. <laughs> it's good because you're think, you're thinking where you should be thinking. Okay. You're 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 right with it. Okay. Um, all right. Next point. God is not a being of three persons, like we believe. Trinity. Okay. But he is a separate God who acts together with other gods in a what's called a godhead. Okay? Kind of like a corporation. Kind of like uh, the first presidency. The first presidency of the Mormon church is not only the president slash prophet, but his two counselors, who are also called presidents. This is combined the first presidency. So this is an example of what is going on in the Godhead. You have three, right here, one separate human being, two separate human being, three separate human beings. They can get together in one purpose to go to a class to understand Mormonism. You see that? They are one in purpose, but they are separate human beings. This is what the Mormons believe about God. Okay? Implication. 
and, and as a matter of fact, uh, quoting Genesis, right? You, you mentioned Genesis. Uh, Mormons like going to Genesis because in Genesis, it says in Genesis 126, uh, let us go down and create man in our own image, right? And so the Mormons go to that right away and say, well, look, there's a plurality there. So they must be separate. Okay? Um, as a matter of fact, uh, the book of Abraham makes it even clearer in their, in their creation account in chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Abraham. It says, the Lord said, let us go down. And they went down in the beginning. That is the gods organized and formed the heavens and the earth. And the gods said, let there be light. There was light. The gods created the expanse and ordered. The gods said this. The gods put the gods, the gods, the gods, the gods, all the way throughout Abraham's chapters four and five. Very clear. So, like we had the Mormon missionaries over, and I said, "Well, you guys believe in more than one God." Oh no, no, one God, one God. Yeah. Um, and then after I took him to all these different passages, and he actually said, "Well, let me read in the back of our Book of Mormon. There's a definition of God, and it said, um, we believe in God the Father and." in God the Son, and in, and it was very clear that they were three separate gods. So by the time they left, they agreed that we did not have the same God. Here's a good quote from late apostle Bruce R. McConkie. Actually, he was a general authority before he was an apostle, but no, never mind. He said, in Mormon doctrine, he said, three separate personages, separate, okay? Note the word, separate personages, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, comprise the Godhead. As each of these persons is a God, it is evident from this standpoint alone that a plurality of gods exists. To us speaking in the proper finite sense, these three are the only gods we worship. But in addition, there's an infinite number of holy personages drawn from worlds without number who have passed on to exaltation and are thus Gods. Bruce McConkie, Mormon Doctrine, page 576 and 577. And real quick, can I give him Isaiah 53? Sure. Well, um, no, 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 hold off. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Look, I'm ahead. Getting too ahead of me. There's an order here. Okay. There's, an, there's a yeah, progression here. Okay, uh, next implication. God is of the same nature or species as man. You understand that? Light begets like. Okay? One human begets another human, and the human doesn't beget a dog. A human begets a human. Okay? That should be quite obvious to you. All right. Um, very nice. Very nice. And as a matter of fact, Mormons will talk in terms of us being gods in embryo. Okay? But you are, you are right on. Um, here's what Joseph Smith said. He said, in Teachings of the Prophet, page 345, he said, God himself is, and this is on your um, uh, seven differences. Oh, where is it? Point three. Right under uh, the point. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. I say, if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves 
in all the person, image, and very form as a man. I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. We've imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil that you may see. 